Good morning, everybody. This is our first week, as you've heard, of our Apologetics Month. If you're new to the church, we do this every single year for the month of August. I've been doing it for like 20 plus years now at this point. And today, I am uh, very pleased to have Dr. Michael Heiser with us today. Um, there's a number of things I could say about Dr. Heiser, and I'll, and I'll kind of give you two, two different intros. One is the, the academic one, obviously doctor, PhD, numerous academic journal entries, is known in that world, biblical scholar, huge in that world. Additionally, um, the sort of what we'll call on the ground ministry level is significant for Dr. Heiser in that he hosts one of the, the country's largest podcast, theological Christian pod, podcast in the country. And then the thing that I've told the other service, which is kind of humorous, he reached the point where not only do you have YouTube uh, videos of, of yourself seeing thousands of views, but then other people make clips of you on their YouTube channels and their clips of your clips are getting thousands of views on YouTube. And the reason why I say that is because there's a, a ministry and a world that exists sort of in academics and biblical scholarship that Dr. Heiser exists in, but also his love for the Bible, the text and following the Bible wherever it may lead, kind of on the ground ministry level is huge. And he's one of the most influential biblical scholars in our country. So thank you for being with us, Dr. Heiser. That's, that's a nice way of saying I can't really make up my mind as to what I want to do. <laughs> uh, have a little bit of trouble with that. Well, this place looks familiar. Look, look like I've been here before. Like, what, two hours ago? <laughs> I'm, I'm not used to this shuttling, you know, back and forth, but it's, it's fun. I want to talk to you uh, this morning about God as man in the Old Testament. Yes, you read that correctly, Old Testament. And there's a specific reason that I want to get into this. Again, this is the apologetics emphasis. And I'll admit, you know, this is, this is one, of these, one of these axes that I have to grind. Uh, I, I really get annoyed at what I see, not only in the academy, when it comes to kind of hemming and hawing about what, what academics will call high Christology. That is the idea that Jesus was deity, okay? Jesus was God in the flesh. Because, it, again, it's fashionable, you know, to be denying these things, but when it filters down into sort of the, the, the populace, you know, in, in, into churches, and nowadays on the internet and all different kind of social media forums, it, it's very irritating because it's often so wrong-headed. And what I mean by that is, if, if, we're, if we're here in an apologetics week to talk about the deity of Christ, the denial of a Godhead, you think of the, the big ones, okay? Judaism, obviously, of course, isn't gonna acknowledge that Jesus is God. I could put Islam up here, but I have Unitarians, Jehovah's Witnesses. Those are the ones that are sort of obvious. And you'd have your, your, your senses tuned to that. What's a little more subtle, and I think a little more damaging, would be things like this. Okay, this is an old magazine cover. Um, I, 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 in the first service, I apologized for Mark McGuire being up there because I know this is like Oakland A's you know, territory, but it shows you how old the, the, the picture is. But you will see magazines like this every Christmas and every Easter at the grocery store, at the Impulse Shelf. You're gonna see it on History Channel. You're gonna see it on any number of websites. 
this, this effort to drive a wedge between the Jesus of history, the one that, that was really there, and the Christ of faith. Like they're two different figures. And the, the way that's sort of justified in the academy, and again, this has filtered down into lots of you know, places online or on television that you're going to run into, and of course, this is why it's intentional, to influence your thinking, is one of the things that'll be said is that this whole idea of Jesus being God is not really original to the New Testament. You'll hear scholars like Bart Ehrman, okay, who's a very famous New Testament scholar. He's, he's an atheist, he teaches in North Carolina. Um, they'll say things like, well, the New Testament got written and then scribes came along later and changed the content of the New Testament to reflect this newfound, newly discovered idea that Jesus was God. Now, Ehrman did that in his popular book, Misquoting Jesus. Ehrman has a scholarly book on this, but then he, he, he's one of the few scholars, and unfortunately he's on the atheist side, who will take his research or his work, what he spends his time thinking about, and he will produce it in popular form for the masses, okay, for the people who aren't gonna go to grad school under him. And it's had a dramatic effect, and this is one of the claims that this Jesus as God stuff was changed later on by scribes. You know, that John and Peter, if we could take a time machine and go back into the first century and listen into a conversation they're having about Jesus, they would never say or think that he was really God. That idea comes later. You know, that's not what they're thinking. They're in tune with the Jesus of history. The Christ of faith is a contrived phantom that comes later and gets added into the New Testament, either by scribes or by later church councils and how they influence scribes and so on and so forth. So this is, this is what you get. And I can guarantee it, every Christmas and Easter, you're gonna see the major magazines with these sorts of stories to get you to question things like the deity of Christ, the incarnation, Okay, around Christmas time, of course, in Easter it's going to be the resurrection, but it's always this Jesus of history versus the Christ of faith. So what I want to do today is I want to take one facet of this, this notion that the disciples would never have thought that Jesus was God because that's, that would be like a violation of who they were as Jews. You know, the Lord our God is one, and you know, we, we're not going to worship this other guy. You know? it, why would we do that? I'm going to take that one instance, that one idea, and show you that Judaism used to teach this idea. They used to teach a Godhead. Jewish theology had a theology of a Godhead, that there were two Yahweh figures. We don't have time this morning to loop the Holy Spirit into this, but you could. There are two Yahweh figures, two God figures, and one is invisible and transcendent. The other one comes to humans in, in, in human form, comes as a man to them. So I'm going to show you that this is Old Testament theology. This is actually in the Old Testament. And it formed the basis for what Jews later would call the two powers in heaven theology. Why am I doing this? Because that stuff is a lot older than the New Testament. So I don't want to hear any argument about how this idea of a Godhead, God as more than one person, 
but the same God, that that was invented by scribes who changed the text or church councils. It's in your Old Testament. The first three quarters of your Bible, that's at least a thousand years earlier than when Bart Ehrman and others say that it happened. Okay, it's just a bogus argument. So let's start with Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the foundational creed of Judaism. The Lord our God is one. This is the only God, you know, our God is the only one that we worship and so on and so forth. Again, this is, this is you know, ground zero for Judaism. But how is it that a Jew could write this? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, so that they're, they're different. The Word and God are, are, are different. The Word was with God, but the Word was God. Well, no, wait a minute. If they're different, now we've got two gods here. Like, huh? You keep reading, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, reference to Jesus and the Incarnation. And four verses later, let me just catch the wording. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. Well, now wait a minute. If there's only one God, that would be the Father. But here it's saying the only God is at the Father's side. And in fact, this only God, which in and of itself is weird because now we're dealing with two again, this only God makes the Father known. Okay, this is John. He's a Jew. How in the world can he be writing this stuff and not feel, like I have here in the next slide, how can a Jew be thinking these thoughts and writing this stuff and not feel that, he's, that he isn't violating the core tenet of his faith, of, of, of Judaism? And of course, this is what, what Jews are going to charge the early followers of Jesus with, that, they, that they're you know, heretics. They've, they've gone beyond this. Well, you know, again, it, it's a quandary, or at least it seems so, because how, how could you have people who are willing to be put to death rather than sacrifice to another god? All of a sudden, you know, Jews say, well, I'm going to worship Jesus as well, and I'm okay. Like, how can I worship Jesus and still be worshiping God as a Jew because the Lord our God is one? How does that work? Well, that's what we're going to look at. Now, if you have a Jewish friend and they're serious, I recommend this book on this because it's written by a Jew who was a, a very well-known rabbinic scholar. He was an expert in the writings of the rabbis. He used to teach at Brandeis University. Alan Siegel passed away a few years ago. But his book, The Two Powers in Heaven, is an intellectual history of, hey, didn't we used to teach this and why did we change? Why don't we teach this theology anymore? He actually says that the idea of a co-Yahweh, a second Yahweh figure, was not considered heretical until the second century. CE is the common era, AD, it means the same thing. So Siegel, who is a rabbinics expert, knows that Judaism, prior to the second century, used to have a theology that sounded a lot like Christianity. <laughs> You know, it, there's a Godhead here. There's God in more than one person, but still God. Why did that change? That's what his book's about. So if, if you have a Jewish friend that wants it from a Jew, right here you go. But we're going to look through the Old Testament, 
at a few passages because I want you to see where Jews got this idea, where they got this doctrine in the first place. Look at Genesis 19.24. What is odd about the verse? Just look at it. This is the Jewish Publication Society English translation. So this is a Jewish translation into English. Let's add a little color. You have Yahweh twice in the verse, and one of them is like a third-person reference. So we have Yahweh raining fire from Yahweh on Sodom and Gomorrah. It just sounds weird. And there are more passages like this where God will be talked about, and then in the midst of the verse or the passage, God will also be referred to by the first God in the third person. It's just very strange. But these are a little bit obscure, but I like this verse because it is so odd. I want to show you again with a little more simplicity as to where you would get two Yahweh figures in the Old Testament. And we're going to start with the angel, the angel of the Lord, and the name. Here's Exodus 3, the burning bush. We all know the burning bush scene. As I said the first time, you know, a couple hours ago, just think of Charlton Heston, okay? Ten Commandments, we've all seen the movie, but the Ten Commandments doesn't really tell you this. You look at it, Moses goes to Horeb, the mountain of God, and an angel of Yahweh appeared to him in a blazing fire out of a bush. We have the language of appearance there, and it's the angel. When Yahweh saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him out of the bush. So who's in the bush? Is it, angel, is it the angel or is it God? And the answer is yes. <laughs> They're both there. They're both there. In fact, if you go to Acts 7, when Stephen is relating this episode in his speech before he gets martyred, he says the same thing. He talks about how an angel appeared to Moses in the bush because Stephen has a good grasp of his Old Testament. Okay? He knows that. So we've got two different figures, and they're in the burning bush. A little later in Exodus, God tells Moses, okay, we've got to get, get, you know, get going here. We've got to get to the promised land. I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you on the way. And he's going to bring you to the place I've made ready, you know, this promised land, and you better listen to him. Don't defy him because he will not pardon your offenses, or your, some translations have your transgressions. Now, of course, in the New Testament, when Jesus tells you know, the paralytic, you know, your sins are forgiven, you, the Pharisees just have a cow because only God can do this. Well, that, that's, that's right but what's going on back here? Okay, we have this, this figure, this angel. You better listen to him. He will not pardon your offenses. Why? Because my name is in him. That's kind of a meaningless line to us. But to a Jew, again, someone very familiar with the Hebrew Bible, they would know exactly what's going on here, as Jews do today. For instance, when I was in graduate school, we had one professor that took you know, he, he would just, he'd, he'd yell at you if you forgot, you know, he'd put on a little show. But if, if you were in class and you pronounced the divine name, he'd pretend to be really angry and offended, and he kind of was, but, you know, he, he didn't want to scare us too much. But he said, now look, when we read text, 
in class, when you come to the divine name, you have two choices. You can either say Adonai as a substitute, which means the Lord, or you can say Hashem, which means the name. It's another way of referring to God. So if you have a Jewish friend now who who will refer to Hashem, the name, he's talking about God specifically. And that language comes from the Old Testament itself because the name, I'll use an academic term here, is a circumlocution, in other words, a substitute, way of referring to God himself. So when God tells Moses, my name is in this angel, there's something special going on. Let's look at a couple other passages. Deuteronomy 12, this is actually something, part of something that scholars refer to as the name theology of the Old Testament because there's, there's a lot of this kind of name language going on. Deuteronomy is a big one for this, a big text. In Deuteronomy 12, there, this is commentary about when we get into the land, we're gonna worship at one place, and that one place, of course, is gonna be where the temple is gonna be built. Zion, Jerusalem, okay. But we read here, do not worship the Lord your God in like manner, you know, like, like all over the place. You know, we're gonna do it one place. Look only to the site that the Lord your God will choose amidst all your tribes as his habitation to establish his name there. What is establishing the name? You know, this is a place where the Lord will choose to establish his name. Now, when the temple was built, you don't have God appearing and a a hand like like in Daniel 5. You don't have a hand appearing and, and writing four consonants on the door of the temple or on the dirt. At the, no, it has nothing to do with the presence of four consonants. It has everything to do with the presence of God himself. When God says, I will establish my name at this site, he means I will be there. This is where I'm gonna live. This is my temple. This is my habitation. This is where you come to worship me because that's where I am. It's a way of referring to himself and his own presence. But here it's referred to as the name. Psalm 20, look at the parallelism. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. What's in parallel? The Lord and the name. The name's just another way of referring to God himself. Psalm 20, verse one, you go down to verse seven. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now what isn't gonna happen is you're not gonna have Israelites when they're in trouble, either militarily or in some other circumstance, they're not gonna be thinking here that, oh, the four consonants will save me. Did I write them down? Let's write them down here in the house or on my armor. They're not looking to four consonants to save them. They're They're looking to God. The name is another way of referring to God himself. Sometimes the language gets personified where you get these sort of human features applied to the name. You know, we often get this done with God. God, you know, as Jesus says in John 4, God is a spirit, but he's often described in very human ways. Here we have the name, the same, the same phenomenon going on. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar in blazing wrath with a heavy burden. His lips are full of fury. So the name can get mad. You know, the, this facial expression conveying, the, 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 you know, anger, his tongue like a devouring fire. Obviously, it's a description of God, but here it's called, God is called, the name. 
Just another way of referring to God. So you take this back to Exodus 23, when God tells Moses, look, this angel that I'm sending to, to guard you on the way, you better listen to him because my name is in him. He's telling Moses, I am in that angel. He is me, I am him. This is just me in visible human form, the form of an angel. Just like Exodus 3. The angel's in the bush and so is God. Deuteronomy 4, before I, I comment on this. If I were to ask you, who delivered Israel from Egypt and took Israel into the promised land? Who did that? Chances are, yeah, God. Okay, that's, that's easy. That's, that's kind of a no-brainer. Well, it's actually a little more complicated because some passages will say God did that. The word would be Elohim, very common term for God. Other passages will say Yahweh did that. Here it's his presence is the instrument for doing that. And over here, it's the angel. Judges 2, chapter 1, the angel of Yahweh came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up from Egypt and took you into the land which I had promised on earth to your fathers. He even refers to the covenant as my covenant, Abrahamic covenant. But who, who brought Israel up from Egypt? The angel. Now, do we have a mess of contradictions here in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament? Who delivered e Israel from Egypt and brought Israel into the promised land? Was it God? Was it Yahweh? Was it the presence or the angel? Which one? Yes. The answer is yes. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> the answer is yes, because they're just four different ways of referring to the same figure, the same God. Genesis 31, this gets even more explicit. This is when Jacob and Laban are going at it. Laban's trying to cheat him. And, you know, Jacob's getting the upper hand because, you know, God is helping him. So in the whole matter with the, the goats that mate of the flock and stripes spotted and mottled, the angel of God said to, to me, Jacob is re rehearsing the story. The angel of God said to me, Jacob, and he said, ah, here I am. And, and he says, look, look, I, I've seen what's going on here. You know, lift up your eyes and look at all the goats that are stripes spotted and mottled. I have seen all that Laban is doing for you or doing to you. I just want you to know, verse 13, this is the angel speaking. I am the God of Bethel. Point blank. The angel is saying, I am the God of Bethel. What's Bethel? If you know the Jacob story, when Jacob has to run away from home, Bethel is the place he first encounters Yahweh. Builds an altar there. So the angel is saying, I'm the God of Bethel. I'm Yahweh. But, it, but it's an angel. There's a co-identification. This is my favorite passage on this, and I'll, I'll share with, with you what I shared in the first time. The last time I had a Jehovah's Witness come to my door, this is what I did. Okay, and I, I was nice, don't like snicker. <laughs> like, I was nice because you, know, you, you wanna establish hopefully a relationship where you can actually have a conversation because everything they do is on a script. I hope you realize that. They're, they're, they're trained to give you certain answers and make you look at certain passages and they have certain I interpretations for them. But I know this is not on the script. So I said to, the, to this person, this couple, I said, well, you know, I, I have a few minutes to talk. 
But I want to know first, are you sure that Jehovah is not an angel? Are you sure? Oh, yeah, of course we're sure. You know, because what, what they want is they, they know angels are created beings, and we can't call Jehovah an angel. I mean, that would just be awful. What they want you to think is they want you to think of Jesus as though he's an angel, like he's a created being at the top of the spiritual ladder, but he's not God. Maybe he's like the biggest angel or the best angel or something like that. Ain't that angel talk is good for Jesus. It is not good for Jehovah. So I, three, four times, are you sure? Are you positive? Are you certain? You know, yep, 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 yep. So, okay, let's look at the Torah. Let's look at a passage about Jehovah, okay? So this is Jacob blessing Joseph's children. It's the, it's the scene where he crosses his hands with the elder and the younger. Again, it's, a, it's kind of a familiar scene. But we never really look at what he says in the prayer. So he's going to bless Joseph through his children, crosses his hands, and here's the prayer. It has three stanzas. Look at the prayer. The God, and the Hebrew is Elohim, the God in whose ways my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. The God, Elohim, who has been my shepherd from my birth to this day. Now, what do you expect for the third stanza? You expect the God who did something else, okay? It's not what you get. The angel, Hamalach, who has redeemed me from all harm. And here's the kicker. May he bless these lads, these boys. If you know a little Hebrew, this is a singular verb form. You cannot translate it, may they bless. It's may he. Well, I'm so confused, Mike. Like, who, who, who does Jacob want, you know, to bless the children? Is it God or the angel? And the answer is, yep. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Perfect opportunity for the biblical writer to put a plural verb in here so that you're not confused. The angel and, and God are two separate entities. You know, never the twain shall meet. That's not what you have. You have a singular verb form. It fuses the two together. Again, this, just think about how we started. Where does, where does Judaism get the idea that we have an invisible transcendent God and then we have a God, another Yahweh figure that comes to people in human form? And in the burning bush, they're both there. I mean, we don't have time to go to Judges 6, but they're both there. Remember the Gideon story? Gideon encounters the angel of the Lord, makes a little sacrifice, you know, a little meal, and the angel, you know, touches it and it goes up in flames and then Gideon freaks out. You know, he says, oh, I'm going to die because I've seen the face of God. The angel leaves the scene, and then the Lord says, I mean, the, it's like the Lord's there too with the angel, but the angel's gone now. The Lord says, don't worry about it. You're not going to die. So sometimes you get them where they're indistinguishable. Other times they're, they're both in the same scene. They're different, but yet they're the same. Do you realize this is the way we have to think about Jesus and God, the Father? Well, Jesus is God, but he's not the Father. Well, does, if he's not the Father, how can he be God? Maybe he's not God. No, he is. He's the Son, and there's the Father, and they're both God, but they're different. I mean, it's the same sort of conceptual categories that we, you know, try to articulate the relationship of, of Jesus and the Father and the Godhead. It's the same thing going on here in the Old Testament with two God, two Yahweh figures, 
one invisible and transcendent, the other one coming to humans in the form of a man. Again, this ought to be sounding familiar again to a room full of Christians, okay? How this works. By the way, I, I'll, I'll tell you another little story. We, this is the last service, so I have a few minutes to blow here. <laughs> Pardon my liberty. <laughs> but when I was in grad school, we, the grad students would get an email every summer. And it was, it was about the Senior Scholars Program. Now, what the Senior Scholars Program was, the University of Wisconsin, in the summers when the dorms would empty, they would literally bus hundreds and hundreds of people from Florida to Wisconsin to spend the summer, put them up in the dorms, and they'd have activities and classes for them. So the grad students would get this, hey, do you want to teach a class at, you know, in the Senior Scholars Program? And as soon as I saw I'd get paid for it, it's like, yeah, sign me up. So I submitted, you know, I'm, I'm in the Hebrew department, and I'm doing theological stuff, biblical stuff, and I thought, okay, I'm going to submit a class on angels. Like, who's going to turn down angels? Okay. So, you know, everybody likes angels. They're our buddies, you know. So, it got accepted. So, on the first day, I go into the room, and I'm thinking, you know, most of these people have probably heard of the standard angel stuff before. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do that stuff with Genesis 48 and the angel of the Lord and all this kind of stuff. So I'm into it about 10 minutes. And there's a guy on the front row that's like, and I said, you know, do I need to like repeat that or you know, is, there, is there something confusing? He goes, my rabbi never told me this. <laughs> and I said, oh, you're Jewish. You know, that's, that's kind of, that, that's good. You know, that's, that's, well, that's, kind of, that's interesting. Your rabbi never told you this. And that's, that's some guy, literally, I'm not making this up. Some guy in the back of the room stands up and he yells, we're all Jewish. <laughs> it's, like, it's like 40 people. I'm the only Gentile. It's like now, now, <laughs> now I'm looking for the exits. <laughs> it's like how many elderly people do I have to stampede to get out of the room <laughs> in case things just turn badly? But it didn't. They're like, this is crazy. This is awesome. Like, keep going. They had never heard of it before. Every person in the room was a Jew. I didn't know that. You know, it was a little frightening. <laughs> okay, here's another figure, the, the word of the Lord. Now, we tend to think that the word of the Lord is, I, I heard a voice in my head or a prophet heard a voice in his head. And, you know, in a number of cases, a number of passages, that's, you know, that is apparently what's going on. But there are other, other places where it's different. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. This is Genesis 15, the Abrahamic covenant passage, the second one anyway. Look at what it says. Again, profound thought for the day. The thought that you want to take home with you when, the, when, when Sunday's over is this. Visions are things you see. Isn't that profound? Like, like something new you can take, take home with you. Visions are things you see. It's very obvious, obviously. So we have here the word of the Lord coming to Abram visually. It's not just a voice in the head. Same thing with Samuel. We know the Samuel story. Samuel is living with Eli at Shiloh where the tabernacle is. They're trying to go to bed one night and Samuel hears a voice you know, calling him and he runs to Eli and says, what do you want? And Eli says, well, it wasn't me. 
you know, it happens a couple times and Eli gets the brainstorm like, oh, it's not me, it's not him, maybe it's God. So like if it happens again, say, speak Lord for your servant is listening. And so this is what's gonna happen. But in the first verse, all of that is cast this way. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. In other words, God's not showing up in human form very often. Not like he did with Moses, like on the way to the promised land and all the angel of the Lord at Bochim. That's kind of unusual now. It's not the voice in the head, it's a vision. And it doesn't happen very often. But here it's gonna happen. Samuel, again, had not yet experienced the, the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. He'd never had one of these visions. He never had one of these visual you know, visitations. So it happens the third time, and look what the text says. And the Lord, the word is Yahweh, came and stood calling to Samuel as at the other times. Look, if he's invisible, you wouldn't know if he's standing. This is the language of visual experience. And standing is one of those stock, again, academic word, anthropomorphisms when God gets described in human terms, like he has legs, okay, he's standing. The Lord is standing as at other times. It was him before, and he says, Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel says, speak for your servant hears. He's encountering the word of the Lord, translation, God in human form in the Old Testament. Samuel grew, the Lord was with him. Let none of his words fall to the ground. Everybody knows he's a prophet, why? Because verse 21, the Lord Yahweh appeared again at Shiloh. It happens other times. The Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by or as the word of the Lord. So here the word of the Lord is God in human form. Is this starting to sound like John chapter 1? Jeremiah 1, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. So we have the word of the Lord showing up to call Jeremiah. And in verse six, Jeremiah refers to the word of the Lord as Yahweh Elohim, Lord God. Truly, I don't know how to speak for I'm only a boy, but the Lord said, I don't wanna hear that. Don't say you know, that to me. Don't say I'm only a boy, for you shall go to all to whom I send you. Then the Lord, who was called the word of the Lord, a few verses earlier, reached out his hand and touched my mouth. The word of the Lord has hands. And in this case, it's not just a visual experience, it's a tactile experience. The word of the Lord is Yahweh in human form. The cloud rider. This is a little section from the Baal cycle. Like I said, this is your, your Sunday treat. You get to see the Baal cycle in church. Uh, the Baal cycle I'm bringing up for a specific reason. Baal is the most ubiquitous, well-known deity from antiquity all over the Mediterranean, the biblical world. No one thinks that Baal is like an angel, like a lesser down on the totem pole, the pecking order of the, of the supernatural world. Baal is full deity. Now that's gonna become important for a reason. 
because one of the, the ways that Baal is described with some regularity is he's the one who comes with the clouds or rides his chariot through the clouds. Because Baal was a storm deity. Baal was thought to be the deity that brings us rain so that we can stay alive. That's why Baal's such a good guy. We ought to worship Baal because he brings us rain. We like to eat, so do our, crop, or our, our cattle, you know. We can't survive unless Baal is good to us. He is the storm deity. He's the one who's up there riding through the heavens in the, on his chariot, making it rain. Okay? Why do I mention it? Because five times in the Old Testament, the biblical writers will, will you know, take that title. They will strip it from Baal, the one who rides the clouds. It's not Baal. Baal's a dork, okay? It's not Baal, it's Yahweh. They will take the title and the description and assign it and apply it to the God of Israel. There are five passages where this image gets used. Here's the first one. Deuteronomy 33, there's no, no one like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens. Psalm 68, the Lord, Yahweh, okay, is the one who rides through the heavens or in the heavens. Psalm 104, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Yahweh, my God. Again, go down to verse 3. Yahweh is the one who makes the clouds his chariot. It's not Baal, it's Yahweh. Isaiah 19, behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. Now, that's four. There's one left over, and you're going to have to wait a couple minutes to get there because it's different than the other four in a really significant way. So to this point, where, did the, where, did, where does a Jew, where did Judaism get this two Yahwehs, two powers in heaven idea? They get it from the Old Testament. God appears in human form in the Old Testament, in some passages along with the invisible God. Two in the same scene, they're the same, but yet they're different. It's the conceptual category that again helps Jews you know, understand that God can be more than one person and these persons can still both be God. And we, we get this from our Old Testament, referred to as the angel, the word, the name, the one who comes in the clouds, again, described in anthropomorphic ways. The invisible Yahweh is not diminished. He's still God. He's not dropped down when we have this other one. They're equal, okay? They're equal. And again, this is the conceptual backdrop to help a Jew have some place to put what Jesus says at times about himself and what New Testament writers and what the apostles say about Jesus. If they know their Old Testament really well, they will know that it's possible that God can be more than one person and so you can worship one, number one and number two, and not violate the Shema. The Lord our God is still one, but he's two persons. They're the same but different. Again, this is where Godhead thinking comes from in the Old Testament. So let's talk about Jesus. The obvious way, place he gets looped into this is John chapter 1. Beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's it, right. The Word of the Lord, the, the Word of God it was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Here's the less obvious one, Jude 5. Now I want to remind you, though you once fully knew it, Jude says, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. 
Oh, no, wait a minute. I thought a few minutes ago when I, when I asked, who brought Israel out of Egypt and into the Promised Land? We had four candidates, Elohim, God, Yahweh, the presence, the angel. Now we got Jesus. And so which, which one did it? Yes. yes. Yep. What the New Testament writers do is they plug into the, this Old Testament Godhead thinking and they take terms and in some cases specific passages and they apply them to Jesus. What are they doing? They're trying to teach you theology. They're trying to teach their, their audience, Christians, that it's okay, Jesus is God. That doesn't diminish God the Father. You know, the, we got this two in one, and this, this ought to be familiar to you because we have our Old Testament. So it doesn't matter if we worship Jesus. This is not like worshiping a, one of the gods of Rome or a Roman emperor. We can worship Jesus and not be violating the Shema because they're the same. Yeah, they're different, but they're the same. Just like the angel and, and God were different, but the same, and the name and the word and all this. Now, there's, this is a, if you have a study Bible, you run into a, a textual issue here. This is only for effect. Yes, mainstream textual critics today will argue very well that angel is the correct reading in Jude 5. So don't let you know, anybody tell you different. There's plenty of information and data to prove that point. How about the name? This is John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. He prays, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. You know, he tells the Father this. While I was with them, I kept them in by your name. So, you know, I made known to them your name. Here's for sure what it doesn't mean. Jesus did not come to earth to announce to anyone who would listen to him that, hey, I've got a, I've got a great, great thing to teach you. Make sure you write it down. The name of your God is YHWH. Got it? Everybody knows that. They know it so well they won't even use the name. They'll say Hashem or Adonai. They don't need to be taught what God's name is. So what does he mean? He's not, he's not keeping the, the, the disciples through the power of four consonants. Jesus is able to do what he does because of the power of God, because he is God. When he says, I've manifested your name to all, to them, you know, to my disciples, he's saying, I have shown them who you are by virtue of just being here. Remember John, when, when Thomas, doubting Thomas asked Jesus, you know, show us the Father. And Jesus says, he that has seen me has seen the Father. That's your answer. This is what he's talking about. It's the same gospel, the gospel of John. Jesus is God, so he shows people the name. He's showing people God. Again, all this stuff gets attached and accrues to Jesus. Right on the clouds, here's the fifth passage. Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, Daniel says, and behold, upon the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Now, the Ancient of Days, we know who that is. That's God. The description, the fiery throne, the flames in Daniel 7, where else do we get that? Ezekiel 1. It, it, it's God. It's, it's God on the throne. But you notice the enthroned God here is not the one that gets called the cloud rider like all the other times. 
Here it's a second figure. And specifically, the second figure is like a son of man, a human one. This is actually a key text in rabbinic discussion for the two powers idea because it's so transparent. Because there's no doubt who the Ancient of Days is. And there's also no doubt that a second figure gets, gets the deity title that everybody knows. In fact, when Jesus is on trial before Caiaphas and Caiaphas gets angry at him, Jesus is silent among all these, these accusations. Verse 63, Jesus is silent. The high priest says to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. And then what he says next we think is sort of Jesus being clever or cryptic or a little bit, you know, you know kind of like trying to steer the discussion or mystify. You know, he's not, he's not doing any of that. He's giving, giving it to Caiaphas in both barrels. He said, okay, Caiaphas, you want to know who I am? Listen closely. Listen closely, Caiaphas. From now on, you will see the Son of Man, the deity figure, seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, Jesus has called himself the Son of Man many times in his ministry. In fact, it's his favorite title for himself. Just think about that. How weird is it to have, what if one of you decided to start calling yourself the human one? You'd probably like, okay, we need to spend a little time over, you know, like, where's the straitjacket? So when he does this, Caiaphas gets the message instantly. The high priest tore his robes and said he has uttered blasphemy because he knows Jesus has just claimed to be the deity figure of Daniel 7. And he's like, we don't have any need of, of any more witnesses. He's a blasphemer. He deserves to die. So Jesus gives it to him straight. He's not disguising anything. So our last slide here. Again, I wanted to go through this because you will see this. Again, it has filtered down into lots of popular media, TV, you know, internet, forums, all this stuff, websites. You're going to see this notion repeated to you that, that the theology you hold dear about Jesus being God and, and a Godhead, you know, Trinity and all this, that all, th this wasn't the way it was when Jesus was actually here. The only reason we have a New Testament that says this is because some scribes changed some things or some church councils decided we like this doctrine, so let's put it in there. Look, it's at least a thousand years older than that. The New Testament writers are in tune with the Old Testament. They know about a Godhead before Jesus is ever incarnated, and when he is, again, everything just sort of crystallizes. It comes full circle. And when he starts talking about himself in these terms, they understand who he is and that they can embrace him as God and not dismiss or disrespect the God of Israel. Thank you for listening. I'll, I'll let you come up. I don't, see, I almost said worship team because you, you have me trained by now. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Heiser. There are many counterfeits, but it, the beauty about Scripture, it always points back to the true God. 
And so as we stand and we close today, I just, whether you're here in person or whether you're uh, online watching today, I, I want to thank you for being here. Stay with it. If you're uh, still trying to understand who this God is, stay with it. Keep crunching it because ultimately it comes down to this God wants to have a relationship with each one of us. Isn't that the cool thing? He wants to walk with us every day. He's interested in what's going on in our lives. He's interested in you. And so uh, as we close today, remember how much God loves you. Dr. Heiser is going to be outside signing books, so go check out his stuff. And also today is the last day to be able to sign up. We've been talking about the Gilroy Rodeo. That's a way that we can volunteer to help get our kids to Hume Lake. So go check that out as well. And then also, uh, if you are accustomed to giving your offering in person, just a reminder, we have the boxes uh, that are mounted on the back wall. Then you can place all your stuff in that as well. So let me pray for you. God, thank you so much. Um, there, there is so much to know um, that, that takes a lifetime about who you are and how you, you are uh, wanting to regenerate us, your people, God, that you've, you've chosen, you've pursued us, God. And so uh, today I, I pray for those that are, that are struggling, um, that they might gain a greater sense of who you are today, God. And so we love you. Uh, continue the, the work that you are faithful to complete in each one of our lives. And we pray this in your name. Amen. God bless you guys.